Chapter 19, Part 2 of Gilbert Keith Chesterton. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Dick Bourgeois Doyle. Gilbert Keith Chesterton by Maisie Ward. Chapter 19, Part 2. Marconi. 3. The Trial of Cecil Chesterton. Meanwhile, the new witness had not been neglecting its self-appointed task of striking at every point that looked vulnerable. On January 9, 1913, an article appeared attacking the city record of Mr. Godfrey Isaacs and listing the bankrupt companies, there were some 20 of them, of which he had been a promoter or a director. Some more ardent spirit in the new witness office sent sandwichmen to parade up and down in front of Godfrey Isaacs' own office, bearing a placard announcing his ghastly failures. Cecil Chesterton said later that he had not ordered this to be done, but he refused to disclaim responsibility. The placard was the last straw. Godfrey's solicitors wrote to Cecil saying that Godfrey would prosecute unless Cecil promised to make no further statement reflecting on his honor till both had given evidence before the parliamentary committee. Cecil replied, I am pleased to hear that your client, Mr. Godfrey Isaacs, proposes to bring an action against me. And in the new witness, February 27, 1913, he wrote, We are up against a very big thing. You cannot have the honor and the fun of attacking wealthy and powerfully entrenched interests without the cost. We have counted the cost. We counted it long ago. We think it good enough. Much more than good enough. The case came on at the Old Bailey on May 27th. It is worth recalling the exact position at this time. The Parliamentary Committee had concluded its hearings three weeks earlier and was now preparing its report. Cecil Chesterton had not given evidence before it, for though he had frequently demanded to be summoned, when at last the summons came, he excused himself on the plea of ill health and the further plea that he wished to reserve his evidence for his own trial. The Matan case had been heard a couple of months earlier. Everything that was ever to be known about ministerial dealings in Marconi's was by now known, except for Ellibank's separate purchase on behalf of the party funds, which was made public just at the end of the trial. Sir Edward Carson and F. E. Smith were again teamed as in the Mentan case. The charge was criminal libel. Cecil insisted on facing the charge alone. His various contributors had joined in the attack, but Cecil would not give the names of the authors of unsigned articles and took full responsibility as editor. Carson's opening speech for the prosecution divided the six alleged libels under two main heads. One set, said Carson, charged Godfrey Isaacs with being a corrupt man who induced his corrupt brother to use his influence with the corrupt Samuel to get a corrupt contract entered into. The opening attack under this head has already been quoted. Later attacks did not diminish in violence. The swindle, or rather theft, impudent and barefaced as it is. When Samuel was caught with his hand in the till, or Isaacs, if you prefer to put it that way. The second set charged that Godfrey Isaacs had had transactions with various companies which, had the Attorney General not been his brother, would have got him prosecuted. There is the same violence here. This is not the first time in the Marconi affair that we find these two gentlemen, Godfrey and Rufus, swindling. And again, the files at Somerset House of the Isaacs companies cry out for vengeance on the man who created them, 
who manipulated them, who filled them with his own creatures, who worked them solely for his own ends, and who sought to get rid of some of them when they had served his purpose by casting the expense of burial on the public purse. There is no need to describe the case in detail. On the charges concerned with the contract and ministerial corruption, the same witnesses, with the notable exception of Lloyd George, gave much the same evidence as before the Parliamentary Committee. Very little that was new emerged. The contract looked worse than ever after Cecil Chesterton's counsel, Ernest Wilde, had examined witnesses, but Mr. Justice Fillimore insisted that it had nothing to do with the case, whether the contract was badly drawn or improvident. But, indeed, all this discussion of the contract was given an air of unreality by the extraordinary line the Chesterton defense took. It distinguished between the two sets of charges, offering to justify the second, concerning Godfrey Isaac's business record, but claiming that the first set brought accusation of corruption not against Godfrey, but against Rufus and Herbert Samuel, who were not the prosecutors. It was an impossible position to say that ministers were fraudulently giving a fraudulent contract to Godfrey Isaacs, but that this did not mean that he was in the fraud. Cecil showed up unhappily under cross-examination on this matter, but from the point of view of his whole campaign, worse was to follow. For Cecil withdrew the charges of corruption he had leveled at the ministers. Here are extracts from the relevant sections of the cross-examination by Sir Edward Carson. Carson. And do you now accuse him, Godfrey Isaacs, of any abominable business, I mean in relation to obtaining the contract? Cecil Chesterton. Yes, certainly. I now accuse Mr. Isaacs of very abominable conduct between March 7th and July 19th. Carson. Do you accuse the Postmaster General of dishonesty or corruption? C. Chesterton. What I accuse the Postmaster General of was of having given a contract which was a byword for laxity and thereby laying himself open reasonably to the suspicion that he was conferring a favor on Mr. Godfrey Isaacs because he was the Attorney General's brother. Carson, I must repeat my question. Do you accuse the Postmaster General of anything dishonest or dishonorable? See Chesterton. After the Postmaster's denials on oath, I must leave the question. I will not accuse him of perjury. Carson, and therefore you do not accuse him of anything dishonest or dishonorable. After some further questioning, judge, that is evasion. Do you or do you not accuse him? C. Chesterton, I have said no. Later, C. Chesterton, my idea at the time was that Sir Rufus Isaacs had influenced Mr. Samuel to benefit Godfrey Isaacs. Carson, you have not that opinion now? C. Chesterton. Sir Rufus has denied it on oath, and I accepted his denial. Cecil still insisted that though the ministers had not been corrupted, what had come to light about Godfrey's offer of American Marconi shares to his brother showed that Godfrey had tried to corrupt them. Godfrey could not have enjoyed the case very much. There was much emphasis on his concealment of Clause 10, allowing the government to terminate at any time, and Sir Alexander King, secretary to the post office, admitted that Godfrey Isaacs had asked that it be kept quiet, but this was not among the accusations Cecil had leveled at him. In his summing up, Mr. Justice Fillimore indicated the possibility that the shares Godfrey had so gaily sold belonged not to himself but to the English Marconi Company, 
merely adding that this question was not relevant to the present case. Further, the record of his company failures was rather ghastly. Here is a section of his cross-examination as to the companies he had been connected with before the Marconi Company. Remember that there were 20 of them. Wild, I am trying to discover a success. Judge, it is not an imputation against the man that he has been a failure. Wild, here are cases after cases of failure. Isaacs, that is my misfortune. Judge, you might as well cross-examine any speculative widow. Wild, a speculative widow would not be concerned in the management. Wild, can you point to one success except Marconi in the whole of your career? Isaacs, in the companies. Wild, yes. Isaacs, a complete success? No. I should not call any one of them a complete success, but I may say that each of them was an endeavor to develop something new. But Carson had made the point in his opening speech that though Godfrey Isaacs had been connected with so many failures, he had not been accused by the shareholders of anything dishonorable. In his closing speech, he pointed out that not one single city man had been brought forward to say that he had been deceived to the extent of one sixpence by the representations of Mr. Isaacs. And indeed, the evidence called by the defense in this present case, however suspicious it may have made some of his actions appear, did not establish beyond doubt any actual illegality. The trial ended on June 9th. The judge summed up heavily against Cecil Chesterton. The jury was out for only 40 minutes. The verdict was guilty. Cecil Chesterton, says the Times, smiled and waved his hand to friends and relations who sat beside the dock. The judge preached him a solemn little homily and then imposed a fine of 100 pounds and costs. The Chestertons and all who stood with them held that so mild a fine instead of a prison sentence for one who had been found guilty of criminal libel on so large a scale was in itself a moral victory. It is a great relief to us, ran the first editorial in the New Witness after the conclusion of the trial, to have our hands free. We have long desired to restate our whole case about the Marconi disgrace in view of the facts that are now before us in the English people. When we began our attack, we were striking at something very powerful and very dangerous. We were striking at it in the dark. The politicians saw to that. Our defense is that if we had not ventured to strike in the dark, we and the people of England should be in the dark still. There can be no question of Cecil Chesterton's courage. But he may have exaggerated a little in saying that if the new witness had not struck in the dark, the nation would still be in the dark. Parliament had already refused to approve the contract without proper discussion, and the outlook was attacking vigorously before the first new witness attack. And there are grave drawbacks to the making of charges in the dark, which later have to be withdrawn. Cecil's withdrawal of his charges against the ministers and his failure to substantiate his charges against Godfrey's company record may have done more to hinder than help the cause of clean government. But his courage remains. And if one had to choose, one prefers the immoderate man who said more than he knew to the careful men who said so much less. Gilbert, giving evidence at the trial, had said that he envied his brother the dignity of his present position. And with the Isaacs brothers in mind, one sees the point. 4. Afterthoughts Four days after the verdict against Cecil Chesterton, the Parliamentary Committee produced its report. 
There had been a draft report somewhat critical of the Marconi buying ministers by the chairman, Sir Albert Spicer, and another considerably more critical by Lord Robert Cecil. Lord Robert's report said that Rufus Isaacs had committed grave impropriety in making an advantageous purchase of shares upon advice and information not yet fully available to the public. By doing so, he placed himself, however unwittingly, in a position in which his private interests or sense of obligation might easily have been in conflict with his public duty. Of his silence in the House, Lord Robert said, we regard that reticence as a grave error of judgment and as wanting in frankness and in respect for the House of Commons. Upon this, Rufus Isaac's son comments, The vehemence of this language was not calculated to command the draft to the majority of the committee. Vehemence seems hardly the word, but at any rate, the committee did not adopt either Lord Robert's report or Sir Albert Spicer's. By the usual party vote of eight to six, it adopted a report prepared by Mr. Falconer, one of the two whom Rufus Isaacs had approached privately, which simply took the line that the ministers had acted in good faith and refrained from criticizing them. Parliament debated the matter a few days later on a conservative motion that this House regrets the transactions of certain of its ministers and the shares of the Marconi Company of America and the want of frankness displayed by ministers in their communications on the subject to the House. Rufus Isaacs' son speaks of the certain ruin of his father's career if, by some unpredictable misadventure, the motion had been carried. It would indeed have had to be an unpredictable misadventure, for the voting was on the strictest party lines, which means that the House did not express its real opinion at all. The motion was defeated by 346 to 268. Lloyd George and Rufus Isaacs expressed regret for any indiscretion there might have been in their actions. Rufus explained that he would not have bought the shares if I had thought that men could be so suspicious of any action of mine. In the debate, the leader of the opposition, Arthur Balfour, somewhat disdainfully refused to make political capital out of the business. Lloyd George and Isaacs were loudly cheered by their own party, though whether they were cheered for having bought American Marconis or for having concealed the purchase from the house, there is now no means of discovering. At any rate, their careers were not damaged. The one went on to become Lord Chief Justice of England and later Viceroy of India. The other became Prime Minister during the War of 1914 to 1918. One question arising from the episode is whether it meant what Cecil Chesterton and Belloc thought it meant in the world of party politics or something entirely different. They seem throughout to have assumed that their thesis of collusion between the party leaders was proved by this scandal. It seems to me quite as easy to make the case that it was disproved. A conservative first raises the matter by inconvenient questions in the House. A group of young conservatives pay the costs of Cecil Chesterton's defense. When a parliamentary committee is appointed to inquire into the alleged corruption, the story of every session becomes one of a conservative minority trying hard to ferret out the truth and a ministerial majority determined to prevent their succeeding. Finally, the leading conservative commissioner, Lord Robert Cecil, issues a restrained but most damning report, which is, as a matter of course, rejected by the liberal majority. A conservative MP told me he thought the great mistake made was that it had all been made too much of a party question. Unless you already disbelieved quite violently in the existence of the two parties, this would certainly be the effect upon you of reading the report of the commission sessions. 
and all that can be said against it is the fact that Mr. Balfour did, in the House of Commons, utter a conventional form of words which, as has been said, really amounted to a refusal to make political capital out of the affair. I do not say, for I do not pretend to know, if this is the correct interpretation, is certainly the obvious one. Douglas Gerald, in a brilliant article on Belloc, treats his theory of the party system as a false one and maintains that he mistook for collusion that degree of cooperation that alone could enable a country to be governed at all under a party system. A certain continuity must be preserved if, in the old phrase, the king's government is to be carried on. But such continuity did not spell a corrupt collusion. If at this distance of time such a view can be held by a man of Mr. Gerald's ability, it could certainly be held at the time by the majority, and it may be that the continual assumption of an unproved fact got in the way in the fight against more obvious evil. Hilaire Belloc and the Counter-Revolution in for Hilaire Belloc. For bound up with this question is another. The eyewitness seems so near success and yet never quite succeeded. Might it have done so had it been founded with a single eye to creative opportunity, to the attack on the servile state and the building of some small beginning of an alternative? G.K.'s Weekly was a slight improvement from that point of view, for it did create the Distributist League. But both papers, I think, had from their inception a divided purpose that made failure almost inevitable. The fight against corruption, which had been placed equal with the fight for property and liberty at the start of the eyewitness, is a noble aim. But, like the other, it is a life work. To do it, a man must have time to spend verifying rumors or exploding them, following up clues, patiently waiting on events. I began to read the files with an assumption of the accuracy of the claims of the eye and new witness as to its own achievement in all this, but when the dates and facts in the Marconi case had been tabulated for me chronologically, I began to wonder. Again and again, the editor stated that the new witness had been first to unearth the Marconi matter. But it hadn't. As we have seen, questions in the House and attacks in other papers had preceded their first mention of the subject. So, too, the statement that the Marconi affair had proved how little Englishmen cared about corruption seemed almost absurd when one read not only the conservative but also the liberal comment of the time. Political corruption is the Achilles' heel of liberalism, said the outstanding liberal editor, while Hugh O'Donnell, in The New Witness, paraphrased the wail of the Cadbury Papers. "'Tis the voice of the cocoa, I hear it exclaim, O Geordie, dear Geordie, don't do it again. Just how scandalous was the Marconi scandal? At this distance of time, it is difficult to arrive at any clear view. There are two main problems, the contract and the purchase of American Marconis. The contract seems very definitely to have been unduly favorable to the company. Clauses were so badly drawn that they had to be supplemented by letters which had no legal effect. Documents were lost, other tenders misinterpreted, other systems perhaps not fully examined, the report of a subcommittee shelved, Godfrey Isaacs allowed to issue a misleading report without correction from the post office. It all may spell corruption, but it need not. No one familiar with the workings of a government department is likely to be surprised at any amount of muddle and incompetence. Matters are forgotten, and then in the effort to make up for lost time, important steps are simply omitted. Officials are pig-headed and unreasonable. And as to lost documents, 
one of the minister's dealings in shares. Godfrey may have been using Rufus to purchase ministerial favor. If so, he could hardly have done so on the comparatively small scale of the dealings known to us. The few thousand involved could not have meant an enormous amount to Rufus. He had, it is true, begun his career on the stock exchange, found himself insolvent, and had been hammered. But he had gone on to make large sums at the bar, up to £30,000 a year, and his salary as attorney general was 20000 a year. There may, of course, have been far heavier purchases than we know about. The piece-by-piece -piece emergence of what we do know gives us no confidence that all the pieces ever emerged. We have only the word of the two brothers for most of the story, and one comes to feel that their word has no great meaning. But, allowing for all that, it is possible that Godfrey may have wanted Rufus to have the American shares out of family affection. Of the shares Godfrey personally disposed of, a very large number went to relations and close friends, mother, sisters, his wife's relations, who certainly could not help him to get his contract through Parliament. If this, the most charitable interpretation, is also the true one, Rufus and his political friends acted with considerable impropriety in snatching at this opportunity of quick and easy money. The rest of the story is of their efforts to prevent this impropriety being discovered. Had they mentioned it openly in Parliament on October 11th, the matter might have ended there. But they lacked the nerve. The occasion passed and nothing remained, especially for Rufus, but evasion, shiftiness, half-truth passing as whole truth, the farce of indignant virtue, a performance which left him not a shred of dignity and ought to have made it unthinkable that he should ever again be given public office. The perfect word on the whole episode was uttered not by either Gilbert or Cecil Chesterton or by any of their friends, but by Rudyard Kipling. The case had meant a great deal to him. On June 15th, a conservative neighbor of Kipling wrote to Gilbert, I cannot let the days pass without writing to congratulate you and your brother on the result of the Isaacs trial. I do feel, as many thousands of English people must feel, that the new witness is fighting on the side of English nationalism, and that is our common battle. My neighbor Rudyard Kipling has followed every phase of the fight with interest of such a kind that it almost precluded his thinking of anything else at all. And when he gets hold of the new witness, my copy, I never can get it back again. You see... However much we have all disagreed, do disagree, we are all in the same boat about a lot of things of the first rank. We can't afford to differ just now if we do agree. It's all too serious. When Isaacs was appointed Viceroy of India, Kipling wrote the poem, Gehazi. Whence comest thou, Gehazi, so reverent to behold, in scarlet and in ermine, and chain of England's gold? From following after Naaman, to tell him all is well, whereby my zeal has made me a judge in Israel. Well done, well done, Gehazi. Stretch forth thy ready hand. Thou barely scrape from judgment. Take oath to judge the land. Unswayed by gift of money, or privy bribe, more base, or knowledge which is profit in any marketplace. Search out and probe, Gehazi, as thou of all canst try, the truthful, well-weighed answer that tells the blacker lie, the loud, uneasy virtue, the anger feigned at will, to overbear a witness and make the court keep still. Take order now, Gehazi, that no man talk aside, in secret with the judges, the while his case is tried, lest he should show them reason to keep the matter hid and subtly lead the questions away from what he did. 
thou mirror of uprightness what ails thee at thy vows what means the risen whiteness of skin between thy brows the boils that shine and burrow the sores that slough and bleed the leprosy of naman o thee and all thy seed stand up stand up gehazi draw close thy robe and go gehazi judge in israel a leper white as snow as the times leading article of june nineteenth nineteen thirteen put it a man is not blamed for being splashed with mud he is commiserated but if he has stepped into a puddle which he might easily have avoided we say that it is his own fault if he protests that he did not know it was a puddle we say that he ought to know better but if he says that it was after all quite a clean puddle then we judge him deficient in the sense of cleanliness and the british public like their public men to have a very nice sense of cleanliness that fundamentally was what troubled gilbert chesterton then and for the rest of his life he was not himself an investigator of political scandals in that field he trusted his brother in belloc and on this particular matter cecil had certainly said more than he knew and possibly more than was true but it did not take an expert to know that some of the men involved in the marconi case had no very nice sense of cleanliness and these men were going to be dominant in the councils of england and to represent england in the face of the world for a long time to come end of chapter nineteen